So as you find your seat and take your seat, see if you can find as well compassion for the apparent self. Trying so hard over the years. Compassion arising for the confusions of self, the suffering of self, the good intentions of self. There may also be an awareness insight into freedom from self. Self arising and passing away and changing as the song changes in awareness like any other content of mind. No problem attached to it. In other words, there need not be a problem with the sound of the chainsaw. We may attach a problem to it, but the chainsaw sound is just sound. There need not be any problem associated to self arising, just another mental content like any other. So if we could, and by the way, as we come back into language and maybe even come back into speaking, because we'll do some uh, sharing here, notice as you speak or contemplate speaking, the possibility of verbal processes occurring without necessarily needing an I in the conventional sense, owning or guiding them. And as much as possible, because it's quite easy to get philosophical or abstract or dispersed here, as much as possible, keep doing what the Buddha taught. Keep coming back to a direct observation of and a direct inquiry into your own immediate experience. Okay? So, in that light, um, who would like to share just what was that like to be relatively or greatly selfless? Yes, please. I noticed it was... And speak up, please, because this way I won't repeat what you say. I noticed it was not so difficult until a couple things happened. (laughs) One was my neighbor touched my foot with her foot and immediately I felt the eye, me. almost tripped on something and I felt I'm going to fall and then that sense of I, me, I'm in danger or trouble or something. Wonderful. So this, those things. Great observation of the conditioned nature of selfing, including responding to or threat. someone was in my way. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Super. Okay, there. What did you experience? I found that I kept trying and that was really counterproductive. <laughs> <laughs> Do not try. Do. Do not try. <laughs> Thank you. Great. Yes, please. Um, I saw a woman wearing a beautiful shawl, and that made me feel myself because it was like a judgment, and then in spite of myself, I wanted it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Great. I, it's really interesting. Desire, desire. I organizes around desire. It's interesting. Does I, I does desire, but much of the time watching it, Desire emerges, and then a second or two or three, self comes chasing after it, growing as it runs, saying, yes, that's, that's mine. All right? Yes, please. I felt that there were a lot of points, like aggregates, that weren't connected. And then I thought, how can I connect these without a self? And so I walked out, and I saw myself created all the time, especially with people contact. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere along the line, I realized I can make, I can think without the self. 
Great, thank you. I didn't trust that, so anyway. Yes, no, super. Thank you. A few more shares. Yeah, right there. It also is interesting to observe uh, what does it feel like to have a self. In other words, when self is particularly activated, let's say, based on desire for a shawl or you know, greed for a shawl or aversion to being touched, let's say, unexpectedly. In other words, when self is more present, relatively speaking, does that feel good? And I think you would say right there that actually you know, more self, more pain, in a way. More self, more suffering much of the time that self itself has a subtle experience in it of contraction from the world at large and vulnerability and a kind of tension. And that's to just see in your own experience. But I think that's what you would say, and I think many other people have said that over the years. One of the other subtexts in your experience that I want to point out is that in the way that you stated it, you were making a decision, self would arise. And then by implication in what you were in the way you're describing your experience, then self dropped away. So self was necessary to make decision left, right. And then you could drop. Just like the points of thoughts that you're talking about. It's a useful working useful working hypothesis for the moment, but then drop it. Do you, do you see I, I heard that in your statement. I don't know if it was there. One of the breakthroughs for me was to was the comment, I think, of um, uh, actually, Andy Alinsky, who's at Berry Center for Buddhist Studies, he said, the executive functions are not a self. In other words, the choosing need not be um, identified with selfing. Right? We tend to most identify self with awareness, which I'll get into just momentarily, as well as choosing or selecting. And um, so those are the two things in particular to be attentive to how we conflate them with self. Mm. Maybe one more person, now we'll move on. Yeah, right there. Yes, please, you. Um, I had this sense that we were all sort of like molecules, not touching oh. each other, but so that I almost didn't feel like I was, I felt like I was just like part of this whole group yeah. and not, you know, separate and just, and everybody like had this little magical way of not running into each other without looking at each other, but having that sense of, you know, the spatial thing around us. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's really nice. So, well, last for sure, Michael. Okay. Um, Thank you. It was pleasant on the cushion, and as we added things, it became a little trickier. I had a memory. <laughs> I walked by, I looked at, up at the retreat center, and I thought about a retreat I had, so a memory arose. And then um, I wondered if it was okay to do meditation walking, so I was like noticing that I was noticing and evaluating a little bit, too. Oh, it's all, yeah, thank you. Yeah. yeah, it's all good. Again, it's interesting. There can be a content arising to mind that's autobiographical, right? This person was there then, and it was like this or that, right? And that's very normal, of course. And we do a lot of good decision-making in reference to autobiographical content. Mm -hmm. But again, that content need be, I mean, what it is actually is simply another content of mind. And it's one we don't need to attribute I to it. The person was there, but there need not have been 
that conventional no, no, notion of a unified and stable you know, owner of experiences and agent of actions. So if you look at the conventional notion, right? This is the conventional notion. But what you actually experienced, right? That's what I'm hearing. What you actually experienced contradicts each one of those four key attributes of the conventional notion of self. In other words, the self as experienced is compounded, impermanent, dependently arising, and only part of the whole being. In other words, let's take those apart. The part of the self that says, I will get up in the morning to exercise, is different from the part of the self that grumbles at 6 a.m., who set the darn clock, right? Those are two different parts. The part of the self that says, um, you know, should I do this or should I do that? Hamlet at the bridge. You know, there are many aspects of the apparent self. It's compounded. And here I'm talking about the psychology of self. In a moment, I'll, I'll talk about the neurology of self, which also matches these characteristics. The second thing is, you know, we have this notion of the self as sort of stable, right? Unchanging. But actually, you observe it yourself. Self lighting up and then fading away in different circuits. Uh, I think of it a little bit like those little lights on, the, on an amplifier or a stereo. You know, the green lights, orange and red, lighting up and then going back down as different frequencies are activated. That's how self comes and goes in your own direct experience. Also, clearly, self is not this independent, coherent um, soul essence, if you will, well, at least the psychological self sure isn't, but it's dependent on caregivers. It's rooted in evolution, as we'll talk about in a moment. And in the moment to moment to moment to moment to moment, it's affected by what happens around it. For example, whether you see a shawl or you're touched by another person or you change the conditions of the body right then and there, whether it's seated or walking up toward the meditation hall or seeing the meditation hall, all those various causes and conditions right, shift the self. Self is not independent from the Dharma. Self is conditioned. It's rooted in conditions. In a certain fundamental sense, when you take this notion of impermanence of self or changeability, mutability of self, combine that with its conditioned nature, you have a process of selfing rather than a self. In other words, as Buckminster Fuller once said famously, I seem to be a verb. Right? rather than a noun. And that goes to a very interesting phenomenon, which is that in the language of Buddhism, Pali, the original language of Buddhism, basically there aren't any nouns. There are only gerunds. In other words, there is no dog, there is dogging. Right? There is no self, there is selfing. In other words, it's a completely, fancy word alert here, processual view of things. I love that word. I learned it recently. Processual. Feels good in the mouth. Process. Let's all say it together. Processual. She doesn't feel kind of good, you know? Right? That's the nature of things. It's try, saying, try saying that three times with toffee. No, I, I won't do that. So anyway, uh, that's the nature of self. It's a self thing. And just kind of relating to it like that is actually quite freeing because then there's much less that needs to be protected or glorified, glamorized, and you know, built up. And then last, it's so interesting to observe how the experience, ongoing experience, so much is happening, right? And the I in the conventional sense, I, me, and mine, is only a part of the totality of the experience of, of living, isn't it? 
So much happens. There's sitting, there's eating, there's, there's thoughts, there's wanting, there's uh, something said, there's I quickly constellating around that something that was said that I, that I either likes a lot or doesn't like a lot, right? And then it fades away. And all that is happening in this large field of the body-mind as a whole, which is the person as a whole. Okay? Now, interestingly, where am I here? Yes, I just want to say one thing here. What's so striking is how self organizes around clinging. And one way to think about self, which is a good basis for compassion to self, is how self evolved, self developed in evolution. In other words, uh, my wife and I have a cat, or I should say the cat has my wife and me. And um, so the, he, I consider him a person. Tsunami's my buddy, he's a person. There is not that well-developed self in the mind and brain of a cat. Monkeys. I'm not sure I've met that cat. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He's a person. Uh, there is less self. But self-developed, as, as Wellwood says here very clearly and well, self-performs, or the apparent self-performs, really important biological functions. Right? Um, it helps the organized cling successfully to rewards and to avoid penalties. To put this in a way that will be familiar to those of us that have a Buddhist background at all, self organizes around the feeling tone of experience. The Buddha said that all of experience boils down to one of five aggregates or piles. The form aggregate, which is all of materiality, whatever it includes, quarks, dark matter, the whole kit and caboodle, that's form and the immediate apprehension of form. That's the form aggregate. The rest of the, four, the other four aggregates are mental, which is to say the feeling tone of experience as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. In Western psychology, that's called the hedonic tone of experience. And then perception, which includes memory or, or identification of something, often with a verbal label. And then the volitional formations, the mental formations, the other contents of mind, and then consciousness itself not consciousness seen as a disembodied and unconditioned factor or presence or something or other in the universe, but rather consciousness itself arising dependently on the momentary meeting of an object, a relevant sense organ, and the relevant sense consciousness. So, okay? In all that, which we won't get into the aggregates right here, the feeling tone is really central. It's interesting how much attention the Buddha devoted to the feeling tone, including one of the four foundations of mindfulness, which is a complete path to awakening. He said one of the four foundations is mindfulness of the feeling tone. And what's interesting to watch is how when there's something very pleasant or very unpleasant, what happens right after it? Selfing starts constellating as an adaptive function to deal with the really unpleasant or the really pleasant. That's why equanimity, in the technical Buddhist sense, of not reacting to reactions, in other words, the feeling tone is a reaction, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, okay? Equanimity is a reaction, pardon me, then we react to that reaction with all our thoughts and feelings and selfing. Equanimity is the circuit breaker. Equanimity says there's just the initial primary reaction without the secondary cascade, including selfing. That's why equanimity is such a central teaching in Buddhism, and uh, in 
And uh, one of the fruits of equanimity, as well as a path to promote equanimity, is to reduce selfing. The less selfing that's present, the more equanimity. The more equanimity that's present, the less the need arises, the less the conditions arise to produce the self. In the wheel of dependent origination, which starts with ignorance and ends with death, the only place in which you can cut that wheel is is between feeling and craving. It's contact, feeling, craving. And there's a whole uh, poster in the work in the uh, bookstore if you can want to look at that. It's yeah. the only place you can cut it. Yeah. Everything else happens automatically. For me, it was incredibly freeing and self-reducing just to get the thought, oh, there doesn't need to be reaction to reactions. In other words, I don't have to react to the reactions. They arise. They land in the mudroom, as it were, of the mind with the smelly... <laughs> Boots and galoshes and sleds, you know, like in the East Coast, they have this room as you come into a house, the mudroom. The reactions land in the mudroom, but they, need, they can stay there. They don't need to go all the way into the living room of the mansion of the mind. Okay. So, I want to talk now about the properties of the self in your brain. So, in the mind, we see directly experienced the, that, the, that self or selfing is compounded, impermanent, dependent, and merely a part of the whole person. The same thing is the case in the mind, and um, probably in the brain. In other words, in the brain itself, and I'll talk through these points, and then I'll show you some very cool images that support these points. In the brain, the self-related functions are widely distributed. There's no, as Rick said earlier uh, to Isabella, there's no specific... Uh, accretion of the self organ, as it were, in the brain that produces some little person, some little homunculus looking out through the eyes. Second, in the brain, selfing and self-related functions are very variable. They light up, they deactivate, they move over here, they strengthen this, they weaken that. They're all over the place in your brain as a whole. In the brain as a whole as well, Self-related functions are dependent. They're dependent on the conditions that activate them. They're dependent on the neural substrate that enables them. And interestingly, they're very dependent on evolution. For example, one of the recent breakthroughs in neuroscience, sidebar, neuroscience, neuroscientific knowledge has doubled roughly in the last 20 years or so. We live in an era that's extraordinary in terms of information about ground zero, the bottom line for the being, which is to say the brain. One of those developments is the discovery of what are called spindle cells. Spindle cells are a specific type of cell. They're called a spindle because they have a really big cell body and they really connect with a lot of other things. They're found basically just in the anterior cingulate cortex, that important part of the brain Rick talked about earlier, as well as in um, the insula. Only the great apes have them. We are among the great apes, the gorillas, the bonobos, the chimps, uh, the orangutans, the baboons, and humans. And also amazingly, through independent evolution, they're found in the brains of whales, some whales, which is really... Whales and porpoises and dolphins, yeah. Yeah, which is really interesting to contemplate. And what they do, what they're involved with, is the part of the brain that's highly relevant to interpersonal activity and awareness here, which is to say a part of the brain that's very, very central to the construction of the apparent self. So you can see how self 
is part of its dependency in the brain is in terms of evolutionary time. Okay? And then last, self and self-related functions in the brain are just a tiny part of the total landscape of the brain. I'll show you some slides in a moment that really show how tiny or small a bit of the neural real estate is occupied by some self-related function at any moment in time. So let's take a picture of this. All right, well, let's take a look at some pictures. So in this slide, this is a demonstration of the distributed nature of self-related functions. In other words, here, uh, the little symbols, if you look at it, the squares, the x's, and the diamonds have to do with different functions. I forget the detail of which is which, it doesn't really matter. One is to recognizing yourself in a picture rather than another person. Okay. Second is to um, recall an autobiographical memory, like Michael was talking about. And a third is to make some difficult choice, like that gentleman was talking about, left or right. All right? So we have different self-related functions. You could see in the slides, is there any place where the squares, the x's, or, and the diamonds concentrate? Not very much at all. You'll see in another slide they tend to concentrate in the midline, yes, but right really, really, yeah, and that's like really, really distributed widely. Including down in the brainstem, which is a weird idea. Yeah, really, really interesting. Okay, so in other words, I think of honestly the self and the brain as like the northern lights or a Christmas tree combo, you know? <laughs> Do you like me? Mm, you don't like me. You know, I want a cookie. There are no cookies left. You know, whatever it is, you know, zoop, 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 zoop. You know, selfing is activating, right, and then going back down again in all this complex, you know, network neurology right between the ears. Okay, next slide. Um, Self-related activities are also widely distributed, as you can see in this slide. This is a person thinking about themselves. They are examining a series of adjectives, self-related adjectives, or personal attribute adjectives like friendly, shy, uh, excitable, you know, risk-taking, cautious, and so forth, and deciding whether that relates to them. So they're thinking about themselves a lot. You can see the parts of the brain that tend to really light up a lot, but again, they're spread out over the, the brain in general. Here's one of my favorite slides from a paper by two women, two French women, uh, Dorothy Legrand and Perrine yeah. Ruby. Um, and what they did uh, is they took a look at a literature review of all these studies, like I think 80, 100 studies worth, ballpark, that looked at what happened in the brain when people were doing something self-related rather than other-related. So if I recall correctly, the, um, oh, the, the caption, you can't see it there, unfortunately. I think if I recall, the white dots are self-focused and the blue dots are not. But it doesn't matter if I reverse it because you can see that self is not special in the brain. That's a very important point. There is no part of the brain seem dedicated to self-related activities. Self-referencing thinking, self-referential thinking, does tend to occupy a lot of the midline of the brain, right. which has some very important implications. There. But you can also there. see it in some of the lateral regions of the brain, depending on the self-related um, activity that's occurring. But those parts of the brain, those parts of your brain, do all kinds of other stuff besides deal with self. 
In other words, if you think of the streaming flow of mind, it's like a great river. It carries all these contents, like twigs and leaves, and sometimes they swirl together. They form eddies in the stream, a self-organizing pattern that lasts for a little while, although it's inevitably transient and it's always conditionally dependent. Amidst all those twigs and leaves and sometimes some big logs, right, moving down the river of mind, self-related contents arise as well. Their own little bits of twigs and leaves moving through that large streaming, but not having any special status in the brain. Okay. Now I want to talk about a key word we dropped in earlier, which is one of the most difficult things to kind of get at in terms of the irreducible sense of self. So far, what I've talked about, including in the previous slide, is mostly self as an object, like if I ask you, what kind of a person are you, right? Or what kind of history did you have? What sort of childhood have you had, right? Or self-related activities, like making choices or planning for a, a moment that your personness, yourself, if you will, the apparent self, will step into, okay? Self as object and self-related functions. That's what we've talked about so far. But even if you set those aside, what so often we're left with as the core of our sense of being an I, and coherent, unified, and stable I, that is the owner of experiences and the agent of action, is the sense of things happen to me. Right? So it feels like there's a subject inside that's apprehending objects. Some of those objects are out there in the world. A lot of those objects are what's flowing through you know, the, the, the space of awareness. In other words, there's often a sense that there's a subject, noun alert, a subject watching the movie. The thoughts, the feelings, the wishes, the future plans, the regrets, the memories of the past, all that streaming across the screen. Right? Doesn't it sometimes seem like that? Yeah. So this is a really, really, really tricky an important thing to get at. And so I think it's important to unpack here. Ordinary awareness indeed has an inherent subjectivity in the sense that it's localized to a particular perspective. Like in this moment, the experiencing that's occurring here is localized to this body, mind, and space, independent of the experiencing that's happening there, localized to that body, mind in space, from that perspective. So there is a, fancy word alert again, perspectival, there's a perspectival nature to experiencing. Okay, that's there, right? That's undeniable. That seems inherent. You can't have, you know, uh, experiences occur in reference to a particular body-mind that has a particular history. But then here's what the brain does. It indexes across all these genuine moments of subjectivity, right? that experience is linked to a particular perspective, it indexes across all these moments of subjectivity and whoosh, finds a subject. Just like a movie has 22 frames per second, the frames themselves are independent. You could even say the frames themselves are um, uh, discontinuous, right? They're not continuous. They're discontinuous, and there's a fair amount of research that shows that the brain and different parts of the brain uh, generate continuous uh, signals, 
pardon me, they, they, they generate um, static signals that are momentary, but that are surrounded by noise. And it's not that the brain as a whole does that, although large swaths of the brain do that. Different parts of the brain do that. So these signals, if you will, overlap each other like tiles that creates an appearance of continuity. But each one of those little signals is separated from other signals, in other words, separated, let's say, from other moments of self by a divide as a kind of noise. So the point is the brain indexes across all these moments of subjectivity and finds a noun. And then that apparent subject becomes elaborated and enriched and layered through the maturation of the brain, particularly the maturation of the prefrontal cortex and its myelination over time, completing more or less, for most people, in early adulthood. In other words, there is subjectivity, but there's no subject inherent in subjectivity. And that is a kind of breakthrough to get. There is subjectivity in the moment. There is a perspectival quality to experiencing that one observes in one's experience. But that does not mean that there is a subject, a noun, a being that is inherent in experiencing. In other words, to sum up, awareness requires subjectivity, but it does not actually require a subject. And I invite you to look into your experience about that rather than get philosophical about that. Going into experiencing, there is subjectivity, even when the mind is extremely quiet, even in the jhanas. We do a workshop on the run-up to the jhanas, certainly. Even in those states, the jhanas are states of non-ordinary awareness and deep absorption. Even when the mind is extremely quiet, there is still the bareness of subjectivity. Things are happening here, not there, but there does not need to be a subject. Okay, so I'll take questions momentarily. So let's have a little sum up. All right, this is pretty heavy lifting. This is probably the deep. This is the deepest end of the pool. We're down by. I grew up in L.A. in swimming pools. So I clocked a fair amount of time hanging out down at the drain, looking up, going, "Wow, that's so weird up there." You know? <laughs> anyway, so let's have a little recap. So then his mother would let him come up. <laughs> <laughs> How did you know? Uh, um, so, <laughs> where was I? So, conventional notion of self, right? Okay, which is that it's unified, that it's stable, that it's independent, you know, it has an independent nature, and that it is, um, um, you know, who we are. But in reality, in your direct experience and in the brain, the truth is that the apparently coherent I is built from many subsystems and subsubsystems with no fixed center. The apparently stable I is very variable and built from many transiently changing neural circuits. And the ultimate nature or bottom line about all this, to use a term from the Dharma, is that self is empty. Self is empty of absolute self-arising nature. To me, self is like a unicorn. And what I mean by that is this. Representations, and this is also a very, in other words, when I first came to this, partly you're experiencing my journey through this subject, which I've really engaged the last several years in my practice, as well as um, intellectually, if you will, or analytically. And, um, you know, people say there is no self. 
well, what do you actually mean by that? Because clearly in the mind are many representations of self. And to use the word real, you know, I think this bell is real, right? I think the patterning of sound waves are real, and I think the sound constructed inside your brain and mind is real in, that, in a sense. It is existent, okay? Similarly, thoughts or representations of a horse are real, and they represent a real entity. There are many representations of self in the mind, but what they represent is not real. The self is a fictional creature. If you look closely at this, at your own experience, and you track the analysis of the brain that is producing that experience, self is like a unicorn, a marvelous but mythical beast. Now, self does have its uses. This is another interesting thing. Uh, as I said about Rick and me, we do have a, an outlaw quality, subtle in some cases and not so subtle not in so others. Subtle. I'm the subtle one. He's the not-so-subtle. But anyway, um, as outlaws. And, you know, you come into Buddhism, right? And there's all this talk about not-self, blah 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 And you think about it and go, wait a second. Like, for example, uh, we're the kind of people who would wonder, you're probably the kind of person also who would think, but isn't the notion of impermanence permanent? You see what I mean? You know, you play around that. So you think, well, wait a second. For example, um, what are the functions that the apparent self does serve? It's a convenient way to distinguish one person from another. It gives a sense of continuity. I think it's actually really interesting to think about the difference between I love you versus there is so much love arising here in this indeterminate space in, in which there is the apparency of that and this. <laughs> And how did that work the last time you tried it? <laughs> My wife didn't like it. For <laughs> <What> good reason. <laughs> so, you, right? go back on retreat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Not well, so good, Grasshopper. <laughs> that's right. So it doesn't go so great. So there's a place for saying, or like Gandalf at the bridge, you know, Baradur, I will not let you pass. I will not stand for this. I will not, not let you treat my kids that way. I will, I will not stand for... Um, you know, Jim Crow laws in the South, and I will go march, and, you know, in the early 60s. I mean, there's a place for that sort of thing. Um, you know, self has its uses. The problem is that even though selfing has been stitched into human DNA, right, by the slowly accumulating reproductive advantages as we've marched across time, it's so remarkable to just feel into the the, the long journey of humankind. You know, our earliest stone tooling ancestors lived about two and a half million years ago. They had brains about a third our size, but they could still make a stone axe, skillfully. I can't make a stone axe. And over that time since then, which amounts to about 100,000 generations, which is about another, which is 100,000 times to reset the genetic clock and to slowly accumulate advantages in an evolutionary sense across that run, as the brain tripled in size, most of what was developed had to do with relationships and relationship-oriented functions like language, cooperative planning, and empathy. And stitched into that was a lot of selfing because self has, re has advantages. 
when you feel pushed around or I will survive, right? Mm -hmm. um, there is a power to that that helps pass on genes. So if you think about it, and also self is very interpersonally constructed, right? You know, you had that experience when you encountered other people, and you could see self-creating. So you think about the co-evolution of relatedness, which is a major um, development of brain tissue over two and a half million years, the evolution of relatedness co-arising with the evolution of selfing, and them co-arising together in a way that carried reproductive advantages for our hunter-gatherer ancestors who bred mainly within their band of roughly 50 to 150 members. So it's, it's stitched to an, into our DNA. That said, selfing does lead to suffering. Much of the Buddha's argument about suffering and its causes has to do with selfing. For example, on the one hand, um, when I or you or me or mine are held as transient mental contents like any other, in other words, they're not clung to, then there's no problem, is there? It's just another mental content like any other. But when we privilege the I, in other words, of all the subpersonalities in psychological, Western psychological terms that move through the mind, the one that gets special treatment is the ego, the I. And yet it is a subpersonality just like any other. It has its functions, it has its uses, but when we make it special, when we cling to it, when we um, fight to protect it, distinct from protecting the person as a whole or the values that are, that are wholesome of the person as a whole, when we try to protect it, we suffer. When we try to glorify it or glamorize it, look at me, me, Peter Pan, I'm so great, right? You create the conditions of suffering. You may not reap that harvest right then and there, but you're planting the seeds every time you cling to self or identify with it or try to glamorize it or get caught up in protecting it. The key as we move through life, and this is paradoxical here, is to be able to move into and out of self-representations, self-related functions, and even that sense of being a subject which is um, tenaciously regenerated in the mind because it does promote survival. Uh, even though it's an illusion, it's not actually the case. It's like a unicorn. Um, the trick is to move dexterously into and out of those different aspects of self without clinging. And that, is it not, is a great art and a lifetime journey, uh, maybe many, many lifetimes of journeying. As we, um, as we meet, especially in the afternoon, we will uh, explore multiple ways to, do, to develop that increasing dexterity so that we do not make the self as one of the, as the Buddha said, four objects of attachment. In other words, the Buddha said we cling to four kinds of things and that may, which make us suffer. We cling to our views. We cling to sense pleasure and the avoidance of pain. We cling to rites and rituals or to update it to the modern world, routines. And, and practices, and we cling to self. Right? So to find our way with all this so that we become less clinging to that object of self and cling less from a, an apparent self, you know, we will become increasingly happy, increasingly loving, increasingly at peace, and increasingly less harmful to ourselves and other beings.
So that's what our hope is um, today. So as part of that, I want to show you this marvelous, marvelous teaching of the Buddha as we head into lunch here. And we're going to take questions about this and discuss this afterward. We really thought about this, and it just made sense to us to get this material in place and then let you reflect on it and observe it in your own experience rather than get heady about it initially. You can get heady about it later, but let's get heady if we get heady at all on a foundation of lived experience. So this is a, uh, a sutta, um, a teaching that's been handed down to us from 2,500 years ago. And you may know this story. Basically, Bahia was a great teacher in the time of the Buddha and a very developed being who came to the Buddha one day for his teaching. And as the story goes, the Buddha initially said, sorry, no, I'm, too, I'm, I'm busy, you know. The Buddha was on his alms round or something. Bahia asked the Buddha again, please give me your teaching, noble sir. Buddha said, nah, not right now. Finally, Bahia said a third time, and supposedly the third time is the charm in that culture. You're supposed to answer after you've been asked three times. Uh, noble sir, will you please give me your teaching? And so the Buddha then gave to Bahia arguably the pithiest, you know, most radical teaching, you know. <laughs> You get the feeling a little bit, he's like, okay, Bahia, I, I see that you've got some game here, and I'm busy, so I'm going to really lay it on you and see what you do. I don't know. I'm attributing that, but I am attributing it. Okay, so this is what the Buddha said. Don't mess with the guru. Yeah, he says, essentially, in reference to the scene, let there be only the scene. In other words, there is a content in awareness, but let there be simply that content without an eye and without clinging. It's simply a phenomenon. The same with the other uh, uh, aspects of, of um, consciousness, the heard, the felt, the taste, uh, the touched, and the smelled, as well as the thought, broadly defined. In the thought, in other words, it's kind of interesting. It's easy to often, in the seen, the felt, the taste, the touched, and so forth, for there to be only the taste, the touch, the seen, and so forth. In the thought, there often tends to be selfing, chasing after it. So even in the thought, broadly defined, let there be only the thought. And when there is only the scene in the scene or the thought in the thought, there is no you in that. Wow. And when there's no you in that, there's no you there. When there's no you there, you, either, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. And this, just this, is the end of suffering. That's the opportunity. When there is simply the walking in the walking, the reaching in the reaching, the goal-directed thinking in the goal-directed thinking, the, the movement toward justice in the movement for justice, the love in the heart in the love in the heart, um, the sweetness of the cookie, uh, the knowing that I should only have one, all that, uh, if there is only that in that, that verily is the end of suffering. So that's the opportunity here, and that's what we'll explore in some depth after lunch. Thank you for your attention there. So, some announcements before you bolt, please. A couple of few announcements. Notice how self organizes around bathroom breaks and eating, as well as encounters. So, first Do not thing, forget the body. That's what it's saying. <laughs> during lunch, if you could, I invite you to just use lunch as a kind of meditation on, you know, self and the opportunity to keep letting there be in the chewing, only the chewing. 
right? And the asking, only the asking. In the listening, only the listening. In the speaking, only the speaking. So see if you can explore that. Second, this is a great time to sign up for our email list if you're so inclined. And by the way, you can subscribe or unsubscribe to either newsletter or do both of them or neither of them. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.